Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Appearances can be deceiving, but it looks like it's time for another exciting episode of, you guessed it, The Bible Geek. And I am the aforesaid geek, Robert M. Price. I'd like to thank folks that have donated toward fixing up our uh, sagging uh, uh, kitchen, etc. And uh, it, we're, most of it's done, but uh, we're still paying for it. And, uh, so if you can help us out, sure would appreciate it. Also wanted to let you know that the latest issue of the Journal of Higher Criticism is out. Uh, you can, in fact, you have to order it on Amazon. That's really the only way now since it's through CreateSpace or whatever the heck they're calling it. Uh, and I uh, strongly recommend the uh, the issue. A lot of good stuff in it. Uh, already uh, putting together the next one. Jeez, I, I, you know, this is very odd. Um, an editor uh, of a kind of a small, uh, what would you call it, a narrow casting or a niche thing. Uh, you always worry about uh, getting enough stuff to fill an issue. But uh, back in the old days when we first were doing the Journal of Higher Criticism, we got uh, like two issues out a year. We're getting like four out uh, now, and uh, I'm mighty proud of it, and uh, mighty proud of Alex Criddle, who puts the thing together after I send him the articles and stuff like that. So a big thank you to him, and while I'm at it, a big thank you to Jason Lawson, who is the producer of the Bible Geek and the Lovecraft Geek and the Human Bible. And uh, so we got all kinds of things going on around here. Well, let's get to some uh, Bible Geek questions, which, after all, is the point of the show, not my blatherings. And uh, who uh, gave us this one? It's, uh, well, it's kind of long, so what it is, uh, but uh, not that that's a strike again. It. Uh, this is from He's Dead, Jim. Uh, yeah, well, uh, does that imply it's... Dr. McCoy? I don't know. Anyway, um, here's a few drops for the old rain barrel. Please use any voices you deem appropriate. Okay, one, the Balaam in Numbers 22 is a head-scratcher, to say the very least. In brief, the Israelites are out of Egypt and amassing on the border of Moab. The king is a little jumpy and so sends ambassadors the uh, king of Moab, uh, to uh, n a nearby divination chap with what the New American Standard Bible calls fees for divination, bribes to curse Israel. The fellow talks to God, who says, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people. 
for they are blessed, num Numbers 22.12. The fellow conveys this to the ambassadors who leave the next morning to tell Kingy Boy the bad news. The king sends more ambassadors with better rewards, and the guy consults God again, who tells him to go with them. Huh? Worse, when Balaam is riding his donkey on the way to Moab, the angel of the Lord places itself in Balaam's way, quote, as an adversary to kill him. Uh, Balaam cheesed off when the donkey, who can see the angel for some reason, stops three times, belts the poor creature who protests her treatment, and the two have an argument. The angel of the Lord then tells him to go anyway, uh, just for consistency's sake, and so he does. Okay, a few questions here. First, Numbers 22.6 quotes the message Kingy Boy sends to the divination chap, which says in part, uh, uh, For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Uh, this rang a bell with the so-called papal passage in uh, Matthew 17, where Jesus says to Pete, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound also in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed also in heaven. Coincidence? Maybe. But it got my critical brain waves moving. What saith the geek? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I think the most you can really pump out of uh, the numbers passage here is that I know what you say will stick. Uh, the, the ancient belief that uh, the word would not return void, that if you cursed somebody, you weren't just letting off steep that son of a bitch, uh, that uh, if you cursed them, you're hexing them, right? You're, uh, you're causing something, some misfortune to happen to them, and if you bless them, you're uh, wishing good luck their way, and it's going to come. And uh, that's why it's such a big deal when Esau and uh, uh, Jacob are jockeying for the blessing of their father, Isaac, because it's really going to happen. It's not just like a Hallmark card or something, right? And uh, so th that, I think, is what he's saying. Look, I I'm Balaam, I'm really eager to have you do this. I want those people cursed, and I know you can do it. So, you know hand me the checkbook. Okay, a few questions here. First, Numbers 22.6 quotes the message. Did I, uh, no, no, sorry, I already said that. Uh, and, and the thing with uh, with Peter and later with all the disciples and uh, in uh, Matthew, uh, what is it, 18, and then uh, again in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, it's like these, the, the uh, apostles have the authority to make uh, legal uh, decisions for the Christian community, and they will have the heavenly imprimatur. God will rubber stamp whatever they say. Now, this, you know, <laughs> inevitably, if you're a nut like me, uh, raises the question, well, suppose uh, Peter says, uh, uh, okay, uh, Daddy needs a new chariot. Uh, is God going to do that? Well, I, I, you know, actually, there are other places where... <laughs>
where something similar is said, like, whatever you ask in my name, I believe that you've received it and you will receive it. So that trip to the Bahamas you've been planning. I mean, it's not, you get the impression there's a seriousness here that it's not supposed to be Aladdin's lamp. But uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of common ground there with that sort of magic. And uh, see, um, uh, second, what is going on in this story? God seems to change his mind a lot. What was Balaam supposed to do? Is God simply senile in this story? Is he a capricious tyrant changing his mind randomly to screw with people? Three times he changes his mind, utterly contradicting previous statements, and then he uh, almost punishes Balaam for following orders by putting the angel in his path. Uh, yeah, that's uh, tough to say. I get the impression, I've always gotten the impression reading this, and that's as strongly as I can put it, that he's saying, Balaam, you know I don't want you doing this. But you're, uh, you're insisting on it. Well, uh, it's your funeral, buddy. Go ahead uh, and see what the result is. Uh, that's the impression I get, though. Whether it really turns out that way for Balaam, you know, that's hard to say. But that's at least the impression I'm given if you're dead set on this. Uh, okay, I'm not going to stop you. Let's see what happens. You know, I, I should think the historicity of this little adventure is certainly up for grabs because, as I remember, Balaam doesn't seem to think there's anything out of order about his donkey um, addressing him in human speech. I mean, it, does he think he's in a Disney movie or something? Uh, it's it, it seems kind of fairy taleish. Uh, but uh, you can always say, well, uh, maybe Balaam's hallucinating or he's drunk or something like that. Uh, well, third, what of Francis the talking mule? Why can she see the angel? How can she talk? This story is clearly legendary, but is there an underlying point that I'm missing? Yeah, I'm sorry, I kind of jumped the gun there. Uh, I, uh, I suppose... There is the idea that the the poor donkey can see things clearer than Balaam can. It's like, you know, out of the mouths of babes, or in this case, out of the mouths of quadrupeds, uh, I, I guess. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's a little uh, tough to say, but it's you're certainly right that it's it's a legend, because if this really happened... You know that that or the same thing on Mr. Ed, the uh, the update of Francis the Talking Mule in those movies. The reaction would be like that um, described by uh, Arthur Mackin in his classic tale. Uh, oh, what is it? Is it the uh, of the White People? Almost said the Great God Pan, but it's the White People. Where this this one. Uh, Occult savant says to his his pal, he says, "What would your reaction be, honestly, if uh, your dog suddenly started speaking in human accents, or if the roses in your rose bush opened their petals and began to sing? You would go mad, I am sure of it. 
Yeah, that that's just too far out, right? You would have to think either that, well, you would either go crazy or you would be pretty darn sure you already had. That's something you couldn't brush off, right? The, the, the reality has suddenly been uh, revised or contradicted. You couldn't just take it uh, uh, for granted like Balaam seems to do. So, okay, uh, okay, uh, did I skip this one? No, no, I guess not. Um, okay, uh, all right, this is another question. These are numbered rather than spelled out. I guess that's what threw me. A question about the... Okay, the question about the passage mentioned above. When Jesus says to Peter, You are the rock, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church. Oops, sorry, forgot the voice there. Would people have been aware of the pun, and was it intentional? Is Mark resurrecting Peter, no pun intended, from having sunk like a rock in the walking on the water story, where the pun was doubtless intended? Uh, I suspect the passage is a later Catholic interpolation designed to justify the role and power of the Pope by tracing its origins back to Jesus, but I'm not sure what does the geek think. Yeah, this is really a, a funny one in that uh, it only appears in Matthew, and it's part of the tendency noted by Arlo Now, NAU, if you want to look up his great book, Peter in Matthew. He says that it seems like uh, that um, originally Mark, in the walking on the water scene, didn't mention Peter at all. But at the confession at Philip, Caesarea Philippi, he uh, he blasted Peter, and uh, this, Peter's feeling pretty proud of himself after saying, "Well, you're you're the Christ." Uh, but then when Jesus says, "Well, now that you know that, you ought to know this." Uh, we're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to get his butt kicked, etc. Uh, and Peter suddenly rebukes him. Doesn't say in Mark what he says, but he rebuked him. And Jesus says, get behind me, out of my sight, Satan! Uh, uh, you're, you're thinking along human lines, not... Uh, not divine ones, and uh, holy mackerel, that's, that's pretty stiff, right, from the uh, heights to the depths there. Well, uh, it, uh, it uh, now suggests that since um, Matthew's gospel takes a much more kindly view of the Twelve, he probably just cut the get-behind-me-Satan business. Uh, at least the first Matthean redactor of 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 Mark, but there were several stages between Mark's Gospel and canonical Matthew, and uh, so the first Matthean redactor probably uh, said, "I I can't let this stand. Uh, Peter deserves more respect than this." So he probably just cut that out, uh, and uh, and then. Um, he or another Matthean redactor instead had Jesus reply immediately to Peter's affirmation of faith by saying, 
Well, you're lucky. Flesh and blood, no human source revealed this to you, but rather my Father in heaven. And I, in fact, I'm telling you, you're Peter, the rock on which I will build my church, and you got a blank check, you know, where I'm rubber stamping any decision you make. Uh, and uh, wow, not bad. Uh, but then uh, some uh, subsequent Matthean redactor wasn't so sure he liked Peter and the Twelve, and so he probably restored the uh, the uh, get-behind-me-Satan thing to take him down a peg, and the uh, authority granted Peter, well, he kind of uh, cuts that too, because a chapter or two later, all the disciples are told that they have this ruling power. It's not just Pete anymore. In in the same way with the walking on water scene, which you, you rightly mention here, in Mark, again, only Jesus walks on the water. But it looks like the first Matthean redactor of Mark decided to have Peter share the, the limelight. And so he says, Lord, if it is you and not a ghost, uh, tell me to walk uh, over to you on the waves. And I, I think the point of that is, Peter says, well, if you're a ghost, that would explain why gravity is not affecting you. You could drift along on anything you wanted. Uh, but I know I'm not a ghost, so if you can enable me to walk on the water, I'll know that uh, you needn't be a ghost either. And uh, and he successfully, according to, to that verse, says he successfully walks all the way to Jesus. But then the next, so so Peter looks real good, you know, he's just like you know, whatever Jesus does, Peter can do. But then the next Matthean redactor says, this guy needs to be taken down a peg. And so he changes it. No longer has Peter successfully made the, the stroll over to Jesus. Uh, he suddenly thinks, like Wiley Coyote in a Roadrunner cartoon, uh, what the heck am I doing? I'm walking on the water. And he, uh, he starts to sink, and Jesus grabs him by the hand and says, Oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt? And he pulls him back up. And of course, this is homiletical. This is like sermon material. That it's trying to say, well, friend, you may be like uh, Simon Peter. Uh, you're walking along amid the storms of life. And as long as you focus on Jesus, everything will be okay. But if you stop, if you start uh, focusing on all the bad things happening to you, you're going to sink like a rock. But don't worry, even then Jesus can save you. I mean, surely that's the point. I mean, every single sermon that's ever been preached on this text takes that approach, and they're right. That is the, the point made by the final Matthean redactor. Uh, and no doubt this redactor is the one who uh, also restored Mark's denunciation. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he spells out what Peter's rebuke was when Jesus said the Son of Man is going to suffer and die, etc. Uh, he says, God forbid, Lord, this must never happen to you. And, and uh, that's the rebuke, okay. And uh, and so that's when Jesus says, again, behind me, Satan. And uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. So what was the point of adding it, the, the blessed are you, um, found on, you're the rock on which I will found my church. 
What was the point of that? Um, uh, well, I think it was a church political matter, though I would uh, place it in Antioch, where I think uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, originated, and uh, that because Peter was important there also, and uh, as in Galatians, when we hear that Cephas, if that's supposed to be Peter, I don't take that for granted, uh, where um, he uh, is uh, chewed out by Paul for caving into James's position, that uh, even Christians who were Jews and Gentiles mustn't eat together and all that. Uh, and uh, uh, so I, I think, uh, and Paul probably, if there's anything to this historically, probably did not win the argument. And so this attempts to uh, buttress the authority, not, well, of Peter, but but more to the point, his successors. You're, you're suggesting Rome, which is a possibility too, but uh, I, it seems to me with uh, their the other clues that it uh, originated in Antioch. By the way, this thing where in the same passage, uh, he says, uh, blessed are you, uh, flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but rather my Father in heaven. That is just like what Paul says in Galatians, that I got my gospel from no human source. I didn't receive it from any man, but directly from Christ. It's like um, uh, this this redactor is sort of remorphing uh, Peter into Paul. Well, if uh, immediate revelation is what we need, okay, let's say Peter got it as well. Yeah, all right. Uh, uh, three, I find myself forming a close relationship with a religious woman who is a fellow mathematician and teacher in training. I admit I'm attracted to her, but her faith borders on the fundamentalist on some issues. I myself am not bothered by this. I am an agnostic, but I find that tolerance on this issue tends to go only one way. Is there potential for this to work? I realize this question varies by situation and individuals, but I thought I would ask anyway. We can discuss the Bible for hours, and the conversation is lively but always good-natured. She thinks I would make the ideal Bible teacher since I don't follow a party line, but discuss the text critically and look at what, I, what it actually means rather than just parroting what it says. Any thoughts, O oh geek? Well, um, I think you're already halfway there at least if she's willing to fraternize with you knowing you're a... a an agnostic does she think you're going to hell because of it uh, that would be a bit more serious right that uh, i think one of the french philosophes said you you can't really love your neighbor if you think your neighbor's damned to hell uh, and uh, there's something to that and uh, but if that, if that's not what she thinks then um that might go the whole way. I mean, if she's tolerant of your views and even thinks your take on the Bible would be refreshing to students, um, I uh, I would say there's potentially a lot there. And in fact, you probably could 
uh, function as a Bible teacher. If you said, look, I, I am not a believing Christian, but uh, I'm not a, an opponent of Christianity. I am uh, deeply interested in the Bible like you, and I may have some perspectives you would find interesting and new. Uh, and so I'm not trying to undermine your faith, but I'm assuming you're always interested in learning more about the Bible and understanding it better, and that uh, you understand questions are just as important as answers. Uh, if you want to grow your faith, I would think you could very honestly say all that much as I do, uh, and that they would uh, they would enjoy it. So that uh, you know, as you've described it, it seems to me that that's you can easily admit you don't share their faith, but uh, that you do respect it and them as well. And I think that could work. She does seem pretty tolerant, as you say. So I'd need to know more, but that's my uh, off-the-cuff reaction. For as a brief follow-up to the previous question, what do Christians want in an ideal Bible teacher, as my friend called it? Do they want some hack to follow a party line? Or do they want someone who espouses Q, J, D, E, and P, and other critical theories without going all the way to mythicism? This, again, likely varies by circumstance, but do you have any insights into what my friend sees as so valuable in my critical approach to the text? Yeah, I, I guess I did jump the gun. I hadn't read this yet, but that's kind of the way I would look at it. Uh, you both, if you say to Bible believers, there are many questions and puzzles, and uh, so many of it, and so puzzling that one often hears people say, well, I guess we'll just have to wait till we get to heaven to find out what the deal was on this. Uh, maybe you don't have to wait. There may be uh, an approach to the Bible, and there has been for a couple of centuries, where uh, it's much more complex than the traditional proof texting. <laughs> the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Admittedly, it's much more complicated than that, but uh, maybe you want to put aside childish things and understand the Bible better, because I think the critical approach can give answers and explanations that uh, plain old, old-time religion faith cannot give. And uh, that is, I think, a straightforward offer uh, of something that will sound good to real Bible devotees. Some will be afraid of it, but that could be true no matter what uh, what you're saying. But I think uh, she, depending on your attitude and your manifest respect for them and their basic faith, uh, I think they could indeed find you an ideal Bible teacher. And uh, I know, uh, for instance, at Montclair State College millennia ago, uh, when I was a religion major there, um, my advisor uh, was the hilarious and erudite Michael Kogan. He was a religious Jew, theologically very liberal, but he he taught the Bible in a critical way, and a lot of uh, I mean everybody liked him, and uh, they uh, didn't necessarily agree with him, but found that he could teach him things. Uh, I think uh, it's very likely that respect and 
the offer of a more mature, informative approach to the Bible uh, might be what's necessary. I think that kind of approach has uh, served me well. So, okay. Thanks, uh, Bones. Uh, let's see here. This is John the Not Disciple, and uh, he said he's got a bunch of questions too, uh, fewer, but uh, he says, uh, one, we know that the apocalypse of John was chosen as the final book in the New Testament, but there was also an apocalypse of Peter. My question is, what is the book like, and why didn't it make it? Well, it uh, actually, it's now thought that the Apocalypse of Peter was part of the Gospel of Peter, because we really only have fragments, albeit substantial ones, of both. And uh, the, uh, the Gospel part of it, which uh, depicts the crucifixion and resurrection, I mean, it's the only gospel that shows Jesus coming out of the tomb and so on. You ever notice none of the canonical ones do? Well, this was very popular and I think was read on Good Friday in, uh, in many churches in Syria. And um, in fact, I kind of took a leaf from that book and uh, I used to go to Good Friday services at the Episcopal Church, and I would bring along a copy of the Gospel of Peter and read it silently while the thing was going on. But uh, in the cruise, and there is a really unbelievably great book about this by John Dominic Crossan, uh, The Cross That Spoke. Uh, it, it deals with a lot more than just Peter, but it does wind up dealing with it, and it is so fascinating. Uh, by far my favorite of all of Crossan's books. Well, anyway, um, this book was widely read by even, uh, I guess, uh, what you'd call early Catholic Christians. But Eusebius tells us that somebody brought a, uh, somebody asked, I think... Serapion, uh, the, a bishop in that area, what he thought of it. He says, Gospel of Peter, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. And so they borrowed a copy from one of the churches that used it. And he read it and said, well, I don't see anything. I'm not familiar with it, but I don't see anything particularly wrong. Go ahead. If you like it, use it. But then somebody came back to him and said, are you sure? Maybe you want to take a closer look at this thing. And when he got to what Jesus says on the cross, it says something about how he appeared as if not suffering. And he said, my power, my power, why have you left me? And uh, the bishop said, um, I may have the wrong name for the bishop, I don't know. At any rate, he said, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. This, this could be read as docetism one variety of which said that uh, Jesus just didn't suffer on the cross. Uh, I don't think, uh, I mean, there's no clue there that uh, Jesus is believed not to have a flesh and blood body. I mean, that's really, you know, ultra-docetism. But uh, the idea that he didn't really suffer 
you know, the whole crucifixion thing, you don't really want to say that, right? That uh, Jesus is just up there getting the view from higher up. Uh, and, and so he said, maybe you should deep six this thing. And they did, and it never got into the canon, obviously. Well, the apocalypse of Peter uh, is, uh, again, it may simply be something roughly analogous to chapter 13 of Mark. Uh, the disciples ask Jesus, well, what's it going to be like? And uh, he goes into something very much like Dante's Inferno, talking about the different punishments levied out for different sins, what's going to happen to uh, people, liars will be eternally hanging by their tongues, and the uh, people who've gotten abortions will uh, uh, be uh, tormented uh, somehow, and, and so forth. It, it's, it, it seems kind of medieval, but uh, this was, um, it's, a whole, it's not a uh, you know, future apocalypse so much as it is uh, the unseen world. Here's the because uh, the, there were apocalypse of both both kinds. Again, there's nothing really uh, theologically objectionable from a general early Christian stance in that, and uh, you can find uh, these texts, what's left of them, in collections like uh, J.K. Eliot's Apocryphal New Testament. I think both are in the book that for which that is intended as a replacement. Same title, the the apocryphal New Testament, compiled by M. R. James. So you could check either one, but James tried to uh, carry on the King James style. Uh, Eliot doesn't. You might find Eliot better, and he often has more uh, critical texts and so on, because various discoveries have been made in the many years since uh, uh, M.R. James's. Um, so, okay. Uh, two, did any early Christians accept the idea of once saved, always saved? Uh, coming from a Catholic background, I know that this concept uh, deals with the debate between uh, whether we are saved by works alone or faith alone. Uh, well, let's see. Well, the, the Roman Catholic view is, as found in the Epistle of James, I guess, is that you are not saved once and for all like the old Protestant hymn says, the hour I first believed. No, in baptism, you're, you're, you're born again. You receive the Spirit. Uh, and that initiates this, this new Christian life. Well, actually, if you happen to be baptized as a convert, uh, still, that, that would initiate it. And salvation is a process of growth. It's it's difficult to separate sanctification and justification in uh, Catholic thought, at least so it seems to me. Justification means acceptance by God, uh, and um, and whereas sanctification means it's not simply that God has put you down in the right column. Okay, uh, if this guy died right now, he'd go to heaven. 
uh, sanctification means that thanks to the sacraments and, and uh, so forth, you're growing in Christ. And that is the process of salvation. Uh, it's a sanctification. It's an ongoing process, which is why it's a mortal sin to just skip Holy Communion. Right? No, you don't want to do that because this, this is a means of saving and sanctifying grace, which is sort of understood as saving power. And uh, then once you... Uh, once you die, if you're still pretty far away from the the Christ ideal, well, like C.S. Lewis, not a Roman Catholic, but uh, a Ang- very conservative Anglican, said, getting into the presence of God, well, thanks, but I'd like to be clean first. Uh, that, that purgatory is in some way a, uh, a kind of... Uh, temporary hell you're being purged and it, it must there is a, a fire of purgatory but it's a purifying fire and it won't last forever and you will be um then you know greeted with open arms in heaven because you uh, sort of fit there now you're sanctified you're among the saints but you could really screw up and say, oh, to hell with this, I don't believe it anymore, it's too hard, and just dump it and become an apostate. And uh, you're committing eternal suicide if you do that, because you, you go into hell. Uh, that is an unremitting and unending uh, place of torment. So you, you don't have security uh, in the same way, but of course you got to go pretty far to just negate salvation. Uh, it's, uh, there have been neurotic holiness Protestants who thought that any minor sin uh, would, would uh, destroy your salvation. I remember hearing one pious lady from a, uh, some sort of holiness church say that she was in the, the store the other day and thought of buying some kind of barrette for her hair but she thought no that's vanity is your eternal soul worth no more to you than this cheap piece of jewelry and so she didn't buy it Whew, boy that that is living in a terrorized state if you believe that and take it seriously right uh in fact this comes up in uh, the great devotional book, Roman Catholic, uh, the uh, the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, where um, the guy is having, I guess, imaginary, visionary uh, dialogues with Jesus, and he says, "How can I be sure of making it to the end? How how can I know I will endure to the end and thus be saved?" And Jesus tells him. Well, you just uh, just act on the assumption that you will. Uh, that that ought to take care of it. And uh, Bonhoeffer said something uh, similar to that. Uh, don't keep looking at yourself. Uh, gee, how am I doing today in this? Just look to Christ. And uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean you're, uh, if you believe there is no eternal security, so to speak, 
that that you you're going to be hag ridden with doubts. Uh, now, who does believe in eternal security? Well, there there are two different Protestant doctrines that are sometimes confused. One is the Calvinist doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which means if you are genuinely regenerated by the Holy Spirit, uh, then uh, you can never undo it. But if you wind up committing apostasy or some terrible lapse into sin, you're going to murder or a, a sexual profligate, whatever, uh, that you're not going to wind up in heaven. And it's not because you forfeited your salvation. No, this would never have happened if you had been really regenerated and, and uh, really born again. So you must have been kidding yourself. Uh, it would have it would have penetrated, and uh, you would never have fallen off the wagon. Uh, Calvin didn't seem to realize that this could and would result in a uh, hysterical introspection, because uh, like the Puritans, they said, "Okay, okay, uh, those who are saved." have been chosen by God, predestined. They would be the elect, whereas the rest would be the reprobate, um, that uh, not chosen, passed over, or worse yet, predestined for damnation. But how can you be sure you're a member of the elect and not the reprobate? Uh, because, uh, after all, Everybody knows or has heard of some apparently pious person, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a choir director, who ran off with the uh, the organist or something in the church. And what do you think you're doing? Uh, this is not only behavior unbecoming to a Christian. It's so inconsistent with being a genuine Christian that it shows you're not one. Your true colors have surfaced, and they aren't very pretty. They like to refer to the passage in 1 John, which says, They went out from us, which only shows they never really belonged to us in the first place, my paraphrase. Uh, so... And and so uh, Puritans began to say, now, there must be some kind of signs of election, uh, certain defining marks that show you really are a regenerated Christian. And they started saying, well, I guess God would not cause the the fakes to prosper. And this is why Puritanism helped lead to capitalism that prosperity was a sign of election. Of course, you just got to read the book of Job or even the Gospels to realize that can't be true, right? But they were driven to it. Uh, and there are other even weirder uh, implications of, of the perseverance of the saints doctrine. But the one that's usually called eternal security, this is one that... Uh, Baptists, and I guess some like Plymouth Brethren, tend to believe in, that once you are really born again, and you know whether you are by faith, uh, then nothing you do can uh, change that. If you've got eternal life, 
but you could lose it doesn't sound very eternal. And, uh, of course, they would say that people that have committed apostasy and fallen away from the faith uh, are anomalies, but it doesn't mean they won't wind up in heaven one day uh, very sorry at what they did. But then, by then, really, really uh, you know, what difference is it going to make? Everybody's forgiven anyway there. I'm, uh, and uh, you might say, well, isn't that really asking for being a, an unrepentant sinner, trading on the grace of God, as a seminary pal of mine once put it, saved by grace, oh blessed thought, sin as I will and never get caught. Uh, no, uh, the, I mean, you could think that way, but here you almost have to think of the Calvinists again. Do, are you not serious at all about obeying Christ and living the Christian life? Doesn't sound like you are, right? So you, you would have to wonder if, if something like that has happened, if this guy really takes it seriously. Uh, it's just like the Roman Catholic abuse that nobody is supposed to do. Say, right, well, if I confess my sins on Saturday, I can take communion on Sunday, so it doesn't really matter what I do. You're not supposed to do that. I mean, and again, if you're counting on that, you have no spiritual seriousness, right? So you're just uh, playing a joke, and ultimately the joke is on you. Uh, so uh, it's you can't take a gross, cynical abuse of the system as uh, being a weakness in the system, it seems to me. Uh, but that's And then uh, what about the other Protestants, the so-called Arminians? Uh, they believe, yeah, you have the freedom to choose Christ and uh, salvation, and uh, you're not hypnotized against your will. Uh, one, uh, one day you might decide you don't want it anymore. Again, that would be a suicidal move, but it would be yours to make if, if that's what you want. Hope you won't, but, uh, you know, you, you, that's possible, and you would not be saved anymore. Now, had you been run over by a bus or something, before you began to stray, yeah, you'd have gone to heaven, but you pretty much blew that. So these, these are the basic options on that. Okay, let's see now. We'll just want wrap up here. This is why Protestants can say, Hallelujah, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Uh, and Catholics would say, Whoa, hold on a minute. There's, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. You don't know the future. Uh, let's keep our fingers crossed, but uh, disaster might be ahead. Uh, why the difference there? Well, because the uh, Protestant sees salvation as a transaction. The deal is sealed, again, like in Amazing Grace, the hour I first believed. Uh, so I am saved, where a Catholic would not say that. A Catholic would say, when I arrive in heaven one day, presuming I do, then I can say I am saved. But I'm on the way until then because salvation is a process, not merely the beginning of a process. Okay. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Okay, three. Uh, somewhat related. Uh, 
This has to do with the idea of the name it and claim it theology, uh, where it comes from, or the uh, Jesus as your personal savior belief. As you have said, this makes God into a genie or a Santa Claus. I totally agree, and it makes it uh, some makes it look as if some fundamentalists use God and Jesus as lucky charms, like a four-leaf clover or a rabbit's foot. Yeah, that's another similar abuse, the name it and claim it thing. I say jump, and God says how high. Uh, this this is where you you've slipped from religion to magic, to use uh, Frazier's uh, categories, that this is now just like a magical charm or Aladdin's lamp. Uh, you're just making a mockery of, of religion, it seems to me. Uh, the Buddha, I think, pointed this out well when uh, he addressed um, Hindus uh, of his time and says, you're praying to the gods for a good harvest and good weather and victory and battle. Well, the gods do exist. Uh, they might answer your prayers, but unfortunately that has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with salvation and enlightenment and liberation from craving and frustration and reincarnation. No, you've got to go beyond the blessings of the gods. In fact, they don't know how to ultimately be saved. They're just uh, more powerful beings, pretty much like us. They just live longer and they're more powerful, but uh, they need to be saved. Uh, and so I think that's very important. Yeah, what do you think religion is about? Uh, is there a transcendent dimension to it? Or is it just a get saved, get rich quick scheme? That Jesus as the personal savior thing, that sort of figures into it differently. I don't think that is even a biblical notion, um, but that's really a whole different uh, question. Uh, let's see, fourth and finally, what is your opinion of the writers Karen Armstrong and C.S. Lewis? You mentioned many writers on the show, but I can't recall when these two were mentioned. Well, I uh, have a love-hate relationship with C.S. Lewis. I enjoy his writing, uh, but I virtually never agree with anything he says. Uh, it's uh, he, He's a, a, a delight to read, and he's very clever, but I think his uh, explanations of things like the Trinity and the dual natures of Christ and so forth are facile. Uh, superficial and do not really solve the problems he, he thinks he can simplify uh, for you. And uh, I, I just don't think much of him as an apologist. His views on uh, the historical Jesus and so forth are, uh, well, he's just a straight traditionalist. He says he can sort of stomach textual criticism, but that's about it. Uh, I would, if th there's a couple of books I would recommend if you're looking for a critique of Lewis. One is an excellent one by uh, uh, John Beversloss. That's uh, B-E-V-E-R-S-L-U-I-S, Beversloss, B-E-V-E-R-S-L-U-I-S. Uh, B -E -V -E -R -S -L -U -I -S. 
L-U-I-S. It's called C.S. Lewis and the Search for Rational Religion. Terrific book. Uh, he's friendly toward Lewis, but doesn't spare him. And then, if I may toot my own horn, I, I uh, did a book called The Needle Toe Letters, which is a uh, kind of a satire on the screw tape letters written from uh, an angel to his protege and nephew, uh, trying to show him how to keep Christians gullible and on the hook. And I think, uh, I think these two books would uh, uh, really uh, say all there is to say about Lewis from a critical standpoint. And remember, I like C.S. Lewis. I just don't agree with him. Very similar to, to uh, John Warwick Montgomery. I love this guy's books. I, I started them when I was uh, evangelical, uh, would-be apologist. I, I would say I saw through them, but uh, they're very enjoyable. The guy's got a great wit and a very sharp mind. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I want to make clear that I, I'm not just trying to do a hack job. Uh, Karen Armstrong, I think she is also facile and oversimplifies somewhat in the vein of Houston Smith uh, in his books on uh, religions of the world and so on. It, it seems to me that he is oversimplifying, and, and I, I understand why that is on one level, because he is trying to introduce the various major religions to people that really have no idea what they believe. So it's a, it's a pretty good book, but it, it seems to me things are oversimplified there. And I find that with uh, Karen Armstrong, too. I've met her uh, through the Jesus Seminar, and uh, she, she is, uh, she's an apologist for Islam, though she she's a former nun i don't know what her affiliation is these days but she's she just makes it sound like sweetness and light uh when she spoke to us at the jesus seminar she had just published a book on the buddha and uh it's utterly uncritical now if you want to just say here's a bunch of buddhist wisdom yeah that's that's great there certainly is plenty of buddhist wisdom uh but i, I raised my hand and said you know, uh, Dr. Armstrong, our whole point here at the Jesus Seminar is to try to get down to the core of what a historical Jesus said and did, but you seem not to discriminate here. If any old book says the Buddha said it, you don't hesitate to ascribe it to him. Uh, and uh, Am I seeing things right here? And she said, yeah, she really wasn't engaged in any kind of historical criticism. Well, I think that's real important, though perhaps not as important as learning important notions from Buddhism, of which there are many. But I am unimpressed with, uh, with her work. Uh, I've not read loads of her books, but what I have read does not uh, interest me in uh, in reading more. I also have to admit I was a bit disgruntled when uh, at uh, dinner once one night during the seminar a bunch of us were around the table and I think it was time uh, the time when uh, 
Bush and Gore had just had their first debate, and she was saying, oh, she's not an American, of course, and she said that uh, we've got to stop Bush from getting elected. And I thought, what is, how is this your business, lady? Uh, and and, and the, the notion that if you're a theological liberal, you've got to have an uncritically positive view of liberal politics, too, that just really left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, and uh, so I'm no fan of hers, I'll have to admit. But I'm not saying people shouldn't read her if they're interested. Uh, by all means, read anything and everything. Well, okay. Uh, I guess I'm getting a little bit worn out here. So I think this will be it for the Bible Geek for today. Uh, yeah, I know we just had a couple of uh, questioners, but we had a lot of questions. And, uh, and hopefully I will be back pretty soon. Uh, with another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Thanks for being with me on this one. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.